0: more than anything else I want to know and I want to understand and I want to communicate in all clarity God's plan of salvation to the congregation that I am pastor of there is nothing more that I'd like to do and accomplish in my life than this right here and that is to know to understand and to communicate with absolute clarity the gospel of Jesus Christ and to communicate it to the congregation God has privileged me to be a part of. There is no higher priority than this one here, the gospel of Jesus Christ the reason for it is Romans chapter 1 verse 16 It says for I am not ashamed of the gospel why because it the gospel is the power of God for salvation the gospel of Christ is God's power period do you mind saying this to your neighbor the gospel of Christ is God's power to save. Nothing else saves. Guys, psychology does not save. Motivation does not save. Encouragement does not save. Coaching does not save. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what saves, period. Amen? But... Christianity makes no sense at all if we cannot answer the question saved from what? Saved from what? The gospel of Jesus Christ is the power to save me. I'm not lost folks. Preach to somebody else. I'm kind of happy with my life and that is most people's response. Is that not true? I'm sure you have experienced how little interest people have in Jesus and in His saving message in the world today, especially this generation. Actually, when you start talking to people about Jesus, not only do they show a lack of interest, they even get offended that you had the gall to talk to them about Jesus saves. And here is the reason. I'm going to pinpoint it to you, and I really want you to open your mind, open your eyes, open your heart, and hear me out because this is probably a little different from what you will hear anywhere else. You see, I'm sure that you've heard this from the world, the offense that they have with Christ, the the lack of interest they have in Jesus. And the reason for this is not because Jesus has been bad at saving people. You know, like when you go to a restaurant and they're bad at serving you, you don't go back. When you buy a car from, I'm not saying which one, but it's no good car? <laughs> you don't go back and buy a car there, all right? And, but, the, but the thing is here that the reason people are uninterested and even offended by the gospel of Jesus Christ is not because He's bad at saving people. He doesn't do a bad job. It is because people resent being told that they have need of salvation. They will callously respond with, saved from what? Jesus is the answer. What in the world's the question? Jesus saves me from what? Do you think? Do I look lost? Is their response. You actually insult somebody now by telling them, Jesus can save you. Because you're implying that there's something wrong with them. And this is basically today a hate crime. People resent being told that they can be forgiven. They will respond with, forgiven for what? What did I do? Why are you criticizing me? Why are you judging me? Hey, listen, I just want to say this one thing. It's not part of the message. But biblical illiteracy... (laughs) Illiteracy. Biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high at an all-time high, and I can tell you right now how you can identify biblical illiteracy. It starts off with the person responding with, do not judge. For heaven's sake, read that portion. He says, don't judge this way, judge that way. Read the whole portion. The first thing is they will say, don't judge. The second thing they will say is, for God so loved the world, as if Love equals salvation, which it does not. Right? right? So, so please, when people start talking that way, you got to know, that person equals biblical illiteracy. Did I say that right? Yeah. Yeah, that I heard electricity. I don't know. <laughs> I have Bruce in front of me. He's, <laughs> that's why. But I'm not going to go there today. You see, unless we know what we are being saved from, we will not be able to grasp the glory of our salvation. Let me say that again. Unless we know what we are being saved from, we will not be able to grasp the glory of this salvation that we have in Christ Jesus. It is when we clearly see our lost condition that we become most desperate for the good news of salvation. It's when you see your need, you go like, yes, I will receive some of that, thank you, God. But if you see no need, why ask for help? If you don't know you're lost, why would you ask for directions? When we compare God's high standards to our inferior performance is when we see the extent of our problem. And the problem today is the world doesn't know or even see that they have a problem. They think they're okay. As they age, year after year, decade after decade, they don't actually think of the fact that one day they will stand before God and that day is coming much sooner than they realize. The reason most people don't run to Christ is because they have yet to discover how spiritually bankrupt they are. They have yet to have a revelation of just how far short they fall of the glory of God. This is exactly why the starting point of the gospel has to be the point at which one realizes their own sinful state. If you don't realize it, there's no point to the gospel. All you get is encouraging messages. You have for yourself a pastor that's a motivational speaker (laughs) or a coach. Or a trainer, he helps you build bigger businesses, greater companies, make more money, enjoy life more. This is not the gospel. This is not the gospel. It's a gospel that does not save. It doesn't produce saving faith. Without knowing the bad news, there's no need for good news. There is no need for a solution. There's no need for an answer. Until we realize how lost we are, we will never reach for the hand of our Savior. You see, man's sinful state is outlined in scriptures by a doctrine called radical corruption. It's a doctrine called radical corruption also goes by total depravity or total inability. So what exactly is this doctrine that makes Christ so very necessary? It's a doctrine that the church has dropped the ball on. The church is no longer preaching because most ministers are motivational speakers. They are psychologists. They help you make lemons out of your lemonade in this life. That's what they do. But you can get that at TEDx. You can get there everywhere else. But you feel like we feel like this is God because scriptures are used to accomplish the goal of motivation instead of salvation. So, what exactly is this doctrine called radical corruption that makes Christ so very necessary that we've dropped the ball on? The doctrine of radical corruption states that every person, with the exception of Jesus, 1 Peter 2 verse 22, is touched completely by sin in all that He is. Touched completely by sin in all that He is. Sin has corrupted His heart. Sin has corrupted His desires. Sin has corrupted His emotions. Sin has corrupted His soul. Sin has corrupted His mind. Sin has corrupted His thoughts. Sin has corrupted His deeds. However, this does not mean that all people are equally bad. And that all people are as bad as they can be. You see, when they hear this, total corruption, they think, well, I'm not as totally corrupt as Hitler. Hitler is totally corrupt in comparison to me. Therefore, I am not totally corrupted. And by the way... I can be much worse than I am today if I wanted to. Many of us can become much more evil than we already are, right? We can become much more sinful than what we already are. So we look at radically, radical corruption and we think like, I'm not as bad as everybody else. But the Bible says they measure themselves by themselves and they became fools for doing so, right? We're a fool if we think. I'm okay because I'm much better than Hitler. Yeah. I'm much better than Stalin. <laughs> we think we're, we're, not, we're radically corrupted, not in the degree in which we are evil, but in the fact that every part, every compartment of who we are as human beings have been touched by sin. That's what it means to be totally depraved. You see, many people... Aren't as bad as other people, and they're not as bad as they could be. Because clearly all sinners aren't murderers, all sinners aren't adulterers, all sinners aren't cheaters, all sinners aren't little Hitlers. And this is because the scripture teaches that the law is written even on the unbeliever's heart. Romans 2, verse 14 talks about unbelievers, people who do not ascribe to Christ, who do not submit to Christ. Look at what it says. Even Gentiles, unbelievers, who do not have God's written law, show that they know His law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. And this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge everyone's secret life. Okay, so here he's saying, in a nutshell, every person, Gentiles, has a conscience, and that conscience either excuses them or accuses them based on the written word, the law of God, that's already in their hearts. But they aren't even Christians, and they still know right from wrong. And that's why Paul says at the end here, uh, and this is the message I proclaim, that the day is coming when God, through Christ Jesus, will judge every, everyone's secret life. People will be judged for everything they've done, right or wrong, because they knew they were doing it. That's what he's saying. Nobody is void of understanding of the difference between right and wrong. So again, the doctrine of radical corruption does not mean that a person is as bad as he can be, for instance. A person can become increasingly more evil than they already are. But radical corruption or radical corruption means that man's entire makeup is touched by sin. My nature has been touched by sin. My heart, my motives, my intentions, my desires, my mind, my emotions, and my deeds, every part of me has been tainted by the power of sin. I want to give you an example. Let's say, for instance, I take a glass of water. Now, we need eight of these a day, right? It's healthy for us. Glass of water. Let's say we take a drop of arsenic. And this drop of arsenic, for those of you who don't know, it's very dangerous. And you drop that drop of arsenic into a glass of healthy water. It contaminates every drop within that glass, doesn't it? In the same way, when sin entered the human race, through Adam and Eve, sin touched us and it radically corrupted us in every part of who we are. That is what is meant by the doctrine of radical corruption total depravity somebody might say but I'm not at all I'm not all that bad I do many good things especially this generation which I'm part of the selfie generation a little older than you actually (laughs) have been trained by our school systems of just how wonderful they are and how (laughs) beautiful they are, how worthy they are for just the best there is in life, when really what we deserve is hell. That's what the Bible says, because of our sin, right? So somebody might say, but I'm not all that bad. I do many good things. I have good intentions. I can show you the many people who benefit from all my giftings and my greatness and my generosity. But if you believe that, then the Apostle John would probably disagree with you or does disagree with you in this. He says in 1 John 1 verse 8, if we say we aren't sinful, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. There isn't a person in this room that is not sinful. There isn't a person in this room that didn't have to deal with a sinful nature that resulted in sinful actions. You see, you... Have sin because you are a sinner. Your sinful nature caused you to commit sinful acts. A lot of people think that they're sinners because they, they did something wrong. Your sinful act doesn't make you a sinner. You are a sinner, therefore you keep sinning. It's like a dog. He's not a dog because he barks. He barks because he's a dog. See? And you, are, you sin because you are a sinner. You were born a sinner. And you were completely touched in every part of who you are by sin. And that's what John is saying right here. 1 John 1 verse 8. If we say we aren't sinful, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. I'll give you another example of the Apostle John and why he is right in saying that the person who thinks he isn't bad is actually lying. Imagine for a moment we had the ability to take your mind and we took every every one of your most depraved sick sinful thoughts that you've had over the last twenty years every one of your most disgusting immoral thoughts that you have had over the last twenty years and we took those thoughts and we had the ability to throw them on a screen and play them like a movie in front of everybody in this room, guess what would happen to you? You would almost die. You would probably jump up and run out the door and never come back. Isn't that true? You would be so embarrassed. You would never want to show your face here again. That is true for you. That is true for me. That is true for every single one of us. And this is simply to prove that emotional, mental, and internal sin is rampant. It's rampant, and we think we're innocent because we didn't act on it. But Jesus said, if you think it, it's like you've done it. Isn't this true? He said, I tell you, if you lust after another woman, it's like you've committed it. He said, I tell you what, if you're angry with the man, it's like you've committed you're guilty as the one who's committed murder. Because it's the motive. It's the motive. I'm trying to bring to you the gospel of Jesus Christ, which means nothing to somebody who doesn't see their need. Can you see that? Good news means nothing to the person until they first hear the bad news. I was walking through a store this week. A man said to me, hey, do you know where those little spray bottles is that you can spray your plants with? In the store, I said, oh, I know. I'll walk you there. He seemed like a really nice man. He's, he's probably in his 60s. He had this big smile. And I was walking with him, and I don't even know how we got into that conversation. But he said, you know, I got five years to go." And I said, what? He says, I got five years. I said, five years where? And I'm thinking prison. (laughs) He says, no, I got five years to live. I'm like, you got five years to live? And I'm shocked. Took me by surprise. He said, no, I was in Vietnam War. He says, and they, they gave me three weeks. And then, after all of the treatment, now I've got five years. If I had to tell anybody here, you have five years left, that would be bad news. That would be devastating. The family would mourn. You would have sleepless nights. You only got five years. But this man, he's like, I've got five years. He was like that. And then he shouted, hallelujah. And I said, God bless you, brother. And I gave him a high five, and I, I walked away crying. <laughs> I was like, oh, God, what's wrong with us? What's wrong with I don't even I'm not even thankful for, for what I have. Look at this. He's in his 60s, and he's excited about five years. Why is he excited about the five years? Why? Because he thought he had three weeks. You see, you can't be excited about good news if you don't first have bad if you don't know who you are and how sinful you are and how far you have fallen short of the glory of God, why, are you, why would you need Jesus? You wouldn't. Save me from what? Forgive me for what? I didn't do anything. You see, we don't know who we are. Why don't we know who we are? We don't know who God is. We don't know how holy he is. is. Because we don't know how holy he is, we think we're okay. <laughs> we think we're okay. What biblical basis is the doctrine of radical corruption rooted in? Is this biblical? I'll read it to you. Jeremiah 17, verse 9. The human heart is the most deceitful of all things. It is desperately wicked. It isn't wicked. It is desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? People go, follow your heart, honey. That's the worst possible counsel anybody could ever give you. Why? Because the Bible says, The human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Touched by sin. Corrupted by sin. Romans 3 verse 10. As the Scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. Oh, what about Mother Teresa? No one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become, what? Useless. No one does good. Not a single one. Hmm. Romans 5 or 6. When we were utterly hopeless, helpless. When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for what? Our sins. Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your trespasses. It killed us. Our sin killed us. And we thought we were good. No, we were dead. Ephesians 2 verse 3, and all of us used to be just as they are. Our lives expressing the evil within us. Our lives expressing the evil within us. Our lives expressing the evil within us, doing every wicked thing that our passions and our evil thoughts might lead us into. We started out bad, we started out bad, but being born with evil natures and we're under God's anger just like everyone else. This is in Ephesians, folks. This is why the unbelieving, unregenerate person will freely choose what is consistent with his sinful nature. The unbelieving, unregenerate person will always choose a sinful life. Every single one of them, every single time. And the sinful nature is what drives him to continue sinning. It is the nature of the dog that drives him to bark. It is the nature of that animal that drives him into his ways. It is the evil nature of man that drives him to consistently sin. You say, I don't have to sin. Well, then go ahead. Don't ever think or say one more thing that contradicts God's standards. Go. It is impossible. I'll give you 15 minutes. (laughs) The gospel of Jesus Christ, on the contrary, is the power of God to save a person from this slavery that we have been enslaved in through sin. There's an interesting observation, and that And this interesting observation is that you may have noticed in the ministry of Jesus that there are a couple of miracles that are really high on His priority list. He basically always healed blind eyes, and He always healed people with leprosy, right? Always healed a lot of blind eyes. People with leprosy got healed a lot. But these were signs of things to come. Just like He opened people's blind eyes in the natural So, he was about to start opening people's spiritual eyes. Now, we pray this and we say, God, open that person's eyes. Do we even know what we're praying? What do we hope for them to see? Let me explain to you. You hope for them to see their need for Jesus. (laughs) Isn't that what it is? (laughs) Oh, God, my son is in the world. Open his eyes. Or do you want God to open his eyes so that he can choose a better career path? Or open his eyes that he can find better friends. No. Open his eyes that he can see he is the prodigal son who needs to come back home. That's what we pray when we pray, open eye, op- God, open their eyes. And Jesus was just like he was opening their natural eyes, he was about to open their spiritual eyes, and just like he was, he was cleansing them from the leprosy that was corrupting their flesh, he was cleansing them, he was gonna cleanse them from the sinful nature that was causing them to be corrupted in every part of who they are. You see, in Isaiah 64, verse 6, the Bible says, For we have all become like one who is ceremonially unclean like a leper, and all our deeds of righteousness are like filthy rags. In the God's Word translation, it says, We've all become unclean, and all our righteous acts are like permanently stained rags. I want to show you an image of a person with leprosy. I didn't want to show you a modern one because... It is just so disturbing. Uh, but here's a man with leprosy. Imagine for a moment this man, in a noble effort, purchased with all the money he had, expensive silk, white, pure white silk in order to cover himself so that he could hide from other people's eyes the corruption of his flesh, so he could hide what he looked like. Now that will be very thoughtful of him, to look more presentable to others but then only for an hour later or two hours later to find that the blood and the pus from his rotten flesh is seeping through and defiling that very expensive white garment that he covered himself with. Now that picture right there explains what happens when you and I think that a deed we do that is good in our eyes becomes acceptable to God. No, our sinful nature and our sinful state seeps through every good thing we do and it defiles every good thing we do because we do not do it in faith, therefore God cannot accept it. We do not do it for His glory, therefore He will reject it. And whatever you don't do in faith is unpleasing to God. And whenever you don't do it for His glory, you do it for your own. So therefore, any work we do, (laughs) any good thing we do, is unacceptable to God. We are not moralists. You are not saved because you're good. You see, when when there's a teaching that goes out, when a a moralist teaches, I'll tell you, one of two things happens in the seats. One of two things happens. You know what a moralist is? People that teach moralism, moralism, be moral, be moral, be moral so you can be saved. One of two things happens you either find a person becomes very shameful because they realize how far they fall short of God's glory because none of us are perfect. So number one, he either becomes becomes very shameful or number two, he becomes a hypocrite, pretending like he is moral. The only person that can survive under moralist teaching is Jesus himself. So in Isaiah 64 verse 6, in the Good News Translation, it says that all of us have been sinful. Even our best actions are like filthy. Even our best actions are filthy through and through, just like that rag. And unfortunately, I've gotten just to the opening, and I will continue, but I want to tell you what I'm continuing with. I want to show you how Jesus himself teaches the doctrine of radical corruption in Luke 18. I want to show you how the Apostle Paul teaches the doctrine of radical corruption in Romans 7. I want to show you how the prodigal son story, Jesus teaches the doctrine of radical corruption. And I once again want to show you how Jesus teaches... Total depravity in Luke 7, verse 36. Jesus came for very, very specific reasons. 1 Timothy 1, verse 15. How true it is, and how I long that everyone should know it, that Jesus Christ came into the world to do what? To save sinners. Not to pretty up a life, to save people from their sins. John 1.29, the next day he saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matthew 21, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus did not come to save us from hard times. Every one of the apostles will tell you that. They will testify to it. Jesus came to save us from sin. And if you can't see the sin that He's saving us from, He becomes unnecessary. And this world has become deaf to the message of Christ because they haven't heard the doctrine of radical corruption or total depravity. They think they are good. I want to show you What Thomas Watson says, Thomas Watson says this, until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Martin Luther said this, if you see yourself as a little sinner, you will inevitably see Jesus as a little Savior. I want to end by showing you this short video. Thank you. You can turn the lights off.
1: they would hold, because in this passage is found the very salvation of man. First of all, he says, for all have sinned, all have sinned, why don't we tremble, why don't we know how terrible this is, we don't know how much we've sinned in the same way a fish doesn't know how wet it is we were born in sin we were conceived in sin we were born in a fallen world of sin the only thing we've ever known is sin our society as scripture says drinks down iniquity like it was water you see here's something you need to understand hitler was not an anomaly hitler was what everyone in this room has the potential of being and not only that you need to understand even in all the all the wickedness of Hitler, Hitler was still restrained by the common grace of God. And you need to know this, that if it were not for the common grace of God restraining you in your unconverted state, you would make Hitler look like a choir boy. What we do not understand is what scripture teaches about men. Men are evil. You say, well, I don't agree. That's because you've grabbed enough of Christianity to stand, but you don't believe the Bible. Do you have to teach a child to lie? Do you have to teach a child to be self-centered? Do you have to teach a child to be brutal to other children? They learn that on their own. Set them free. Discipline them not and see what you have in 10 years, a monster. Why? Because what Scripture says is true. And you hold your ears and you say, I don't want to hear it. I don't want to hear it in the same way that a person dying of cancer is in denial and says to the doctor,
0: I don't want to hear it.
1: sin so terrible? Because it's committed against God. Why don't we tremble? Because we don't know what that means. And why don't we know what that means? Because we do not know who God is. Such a glorious and blessed being. Imagine this for a moment. God stands there on the day of creation and he tells planets to put themselves in certain orbits in space and they all bow down and say amen. He tells stars to to find their place in the sky and to follow his decree to the letter, and they all bow down and obey him. He tells mountains to be lifted up and valleys to be cast down, and they bow down and worship. He tells the way the stars are exalted by a pitch black sky let me ask you a question where did the stars go this afternoon did someone put them all in a basket and carry them away how come when you looked up you didn't see them because there was so much light you could not marvel at their beauty you could not even see them in the same way you cannot see the stars of god's grace and his love With so much light, when preachers tell you that men are so good, the only way to truly appreciate the love of God and the grace of God is to see the pitch-dark blackness of man. And when you see the pitch-dark blackness of your own heart, and then you realize that God moved in love for you, it causes you to fall down on your knees with the greatest esteem and worship God.
0: Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for every heart here today. I thank you for every person here today. Lord, that you will move on them to show them your gospel, the good news. You came to seek and save those who were lost. Most not even knowing that they are. Walking through a wide gate, down a wide road, thinking it takes them one place, but it takes them to another. God, I thank you for a sobriety in our hearts and our minds. God, I thank you that we will not come to you because of hardships necessarily, but we will initially come to you because we recognize our need for forgiveness of our sins. Lord, that we will be saved that way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. I want to encourage you in an altar call today, and this altar call is real simple. If you have never run to Christ because of your sin, I'm going to ask you to do that between you and God, because at that point it's real. Many people run to God because they are in need. They've fallen on hard times. They have health issues. They have financial issues. They have needs. They are being persecuted on the job. They need a new job. They run to God. Whenever they need something, they run to God because they believe God is going to help them pretty up their life. Jesus didn't die so we can pretty up our lives. He didn't shed His blood so we can have even more than what we already do. He didn't shed His blood so we can be more comfortable than what we already are. Jesus shed His blood so we can be forgiven and freed from sin and its consequence, which is death, eternal death, which is eternal separation from the Father. The apostle Paul says, and this is eternal life, that we may know Him, and we can only know Him, the real God of the Bible, if sin has been removed. But many people know a God of their own imagination. One they make up that does not match scriptures. The only way for you to be reconciled with God is if the sin issue has been dealt with. The sin issue has been removed. And if we don't run to Christ over our sin, then how are we saved? How? Which God do we have a a relationship with? With Oprah's God? With Rob Bell's (laughs) God? Whose God do people have? People have gods of their own making but if you want a relationship with the God of Scripture then your sin has to be dealt with and if you did not know that your sin was a problem then this is the time for you to recognize it for every part of us have been touched by that evil and until we run to God over that issue can we be born again receive a new nature A nature that now wants Him. A nature that now desires Him. I can tell you now, people don't go to heaven because they have no sin. They go to heaven because they hate sin. The sin that they already have in their lives. This is why a Christian is a Christian and a real Christian. It's because they have a new heart. Didn't he say, I will give you the desires of your heart. I will give it to you. You will now desire righteousness. You will now desire me. Even though your flesh is still drawn to things, you hate the fact that it is. And you desire God and His righteousness alone. And only then, when you start desiring God, not only when you're falling apart, do you run to a prayer meeting. No, you run to a prayer meeting because you desire God. Not only do you run to a church because... You fall on hard times. No, you run because you desire God. Not only do you serve to be noticed and known by other people, no, because you love God. And that's why we give, that's why we serve, that's why we live the way we do, because He has given us a new heart. We are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen. And that is the end of the opening of our new series. Amen. I hope you enjoyed that.